Hi, welcome to season three of the ACE Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read lengthy journal articles or reports. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACEDIT is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. In this episode of the podcast, we scope out from treatments for opioid use disorder to look at the role of community. To do that, we thread together three separate studies, one that surveyed American households on their beliefs regarding opioid use disorder and how the community should address the problem, another that sought to understand community-level characteristics that impact whether a county engages in criminal legal behavioral health initiatives, and a final study that looks at the feasibility of a novel community stakeholder approach to addressing the opioid problem. In our first study, Dr. Bruce Taylor and colleagues surveyed the general public's attitudes toward opioid use disorder treatment and policies, and to what degree the public endorsed using criminal law to address opioid use disorders. To examine these questions, this research team used an existing survey apparatus called Amerispeak. Amerispeak draws a nationally representative sample each year and sends a survey to about 35,000 households. And this program also oversees monthly surveys sent to randomly selected subsample of Amerispeak respondents. These monthly surveys allow researchers to ask varying questions of interest. Dr. Taylor and his colleagues' survey measured social stigma toward people with an OUD, agreement or opposition to policies that benefit individuals with OUD, and the degree to which people thought opioid use should be dealt with as a crime. They also wanted to investigate what factors might influence different perspectives, some things they felt might correlate or predict how people felt about the above issues were their knowledge of OUD as a medical condition a person's own personal experience with opioid misuse, either their own or that of a friend or family member, their personal experience with the criminal legal system, either their own or that of a family member or friend, and finally, sociodemographic characteristics or factors such as age, sex, ethnicity, education, urban area, and income and employment. What they found was that the general population evidences sort of mid-level stigma toward individuals with OUD, and that generally people tend to view OUD as a medical condition. People are generally supportive of policies that benefit people with OUD and generally not supportive of a criminal law approach, such as arresting, convicting, or sentencing to jail or prison people with OUD. And while that is interesting, what is even more interesting is looking at what impacts these beliefs. One factor that impacts our perspective on all of these issues is personal experience, and in particular, our own experience, rather than that of a family member or a friend. Personal experience with opioid use or the criminal legal system makes us view helpful policies more favorably, lessen our perceptions of stigma around OUD, and make us feel less favorably toward a criminal law approach. But the biggest predictor of how we feel is whether we view OUD as a medical condition. People who do not see OUD as a medical condition are more likely to view policies to help individuals with OUD less favorably, more likely to stigmatize OUD, and more likely to endorse a criminal law approach. Demographics also matter. As the research team notes, respondents who are younger, black, 
or have less than a high school education held less stigmatizing beliefs toward OUD compared with non-Hispanic whites and those with a high school diploma or equivalency. However, Asian respondents compared with non-Hispanic whites and those earning higher income, think the $85,000 to $150,000 range, were more likely to support stigmatizing beliefs toward OUD and people who misuse opioids. These data can also help culturally tailor some of the public education efforts to specific groups that are likely to harbor greater opioid stigma. And demographics also matter when it comes to decriminalizing approaches to OUD. The authors note that, quote, policymakers or other advocates might consider targeting education to older white males, those with a high school education, those not retired from employment, and those earning higher income in the $85,000 to $150,000 range. Unquote. Bruce Taylor and colleagues' survey helps us better understand the importance of educational efforts and where they might be targeted. It also helps inform who should be at the table when discussing problem solving for OUD. In particular, those with lived criminal legal system involvement and opioid use experience may be more likely to understand the difficulties of trying to reorient their life away from illegal behavior, trying to navigate the treatment landscape, or best approaches to reducing the harmful effects of OUD. While surveys can look at general population trends, another important unit of analysis, as we say in the science game, are counties. Much of the systems-level work that happens to address local problems happens at the county level. Dr. Allison Cuyer and colleagues wanted to know what factors might be impacting whether a county participates in initiatives to improve treatment for its mental health and substance use disorders for criminally involved individuals. They wondered if counties' economic, criminal legal, or healthcare delivery characteristics impact participation. To study this, the team had to decide on their sample. They excluded Puerto Rico, counties and states with consolidated prison and jail systems, counties with no reported jail population, and counties with populations of less than 1,000 people. So, in the end, they looked at 2,922 of the 3,142 counties or county equivalents in the United States. Then, they identified which counties participated in several federal initiatives to expand treatment capacity for mental health and substance use disorders for criminally involved people. These initiatives included the Healing Communities Study, or JCOIN, Stepping Up, and counties awarded grants by SAMHSA, or the Bureau of Justice Administration, BJA, to support substance use and mental health services in court or jail settings between the years 2018 and 2020. This group included 818 counties from the sample of 28% of the sample. 7% of the sample participated in two or more. Rural counties made up 40% of the overall sample, yet only 17% of the participating counties. Once they had the sample, they determined which counties participated in capacity-expanding initiatives. Then they had to measure the county's characteristics. To accomplish this, they got creative and used a bunch of different data sets. They derived county criminal legal measures from the Federal Uniform Crime Report Program, UCR, and the Vera Institute of Justice. They calculated sociodemographic characteristics using the American Community Survey, 
They also looked at several measures of a county's resources. They calculated provider supply from SAMHSA directories of providers with buprenorphine waiver and of specialty outpatient opioid treatment programs. They also created an indicator for whether the county was in a state with adult Medicaid expansion program. They obtained information from the Health Resources and Health Services Administration about whether a county was a health professional shortage area for mental health, whether the county had a federally qualified health center or rural health center, and the number of psychiatrists or psychologists per 100,000 population. And because counties may draw on clinical resources beyond their immediate boundaries, they also created measures of clinical and provider supply that included the immediately adjacent counties. Once they had all the county characteristics calculated, they conducted statistical tests of differences in characteristics between those that participated in at least one of the federal substance use and mental health initiatives and those that did not. For those interested in the technical aspects, they used linear regression models that controlled for county-rural status, and they looked at the regression and adjustment means for each characteristic for participating and non-participating counties. They found no differences between the two groups in socioeconomic characteristics. So when it came to ethnic makeup, unemployment rate, poverty rate, or level of income inequality, the regression-adjusted means for the two groups did not differ. But participating counties had fewer jail days and fewer law enforcement personnel on a population-adjusted basis. They also had lower rates of uninsured people and were more likely to be Medicaid expansion states. And there were large differences in the supply of providers in providing counties versus non-participating counties. Participating counties were more likely to have any buprenorphine-wavered providers, to have opioid use disorder treatment facilities, and to have federally funded quality health centers. They also had more psychiatrists and psychologists per 100,000 people, and these differences were large. Participating counties were more than twice as likely to have an opioid use disorder treatment center, and their rate of psychologists per 100,000 was about two-thirds higher in participating counties, and it was nearly twice as high for psychiatrists. Dr. Kier and colleagues conclude that the study implies the need for greater investment in provider expansion through infrastructure and workforce development, technical assistance, as well as expansion of telehealth, peer professionals, and insurance coverage through Medicaid expansion. And they note that by doing these things, a county can improve its capacity to participate in innovative programs. Both studies we talked about have provided some guidelines on where a community might target its resources. We know education is important, particularly about OUD as a medical condition. We also know that education might be more powerful if tailored for particular groups. We better understand the importance of including those with personal experience to help address problems that result from opioid use disorders, and we have a better understanding of the importance of capacity at the county level. But knowing what to do and knowing how to do it can often be separated by an ocean. One more study. Here we go. In our final study, doctors Stephanie Solis and Sean Young note that, quote, new approaches to engage society are necessary to address the opioid epidemic, end quote. To that end, they examined the feasibility of a citizen-driven hackathon to increase public engagement and address the opioid crisis. Hackathons are intensive, short-duration competitions in which teams work together 
to develop a new solution to a challenge, typically a solution that is centered on creating a working software prototype. So Liz and Young argue that actively engaging citizens in the design, development, and implementation of public health and opioid-related solutions may help to improve creativity, engagement, and health outcomes within society. So they planned and implemented a 24-hour hackathon event that brought together teams from law enforcement, public health, data science, and research to attempt to quickly develop software solutions to assist in solving problems related to the opioid epidemic. Most of those aforementioned groups participated as an advisory board to provide feedback on the event. Three quarters of the actual event participants had technical or engineering backgrounds, over half of the backgrounds in industries such as data science and startups. Just 9% had backgrounds in public health or medicine, and 6% had a background in public policy or government, which undoubtedly speaks to the nature of how the four tracks in which participants could compete, all of which were technical in nature. For example, building real-time models and creating visualization tools. In an attempt to provide a comprehensive review of the opioid epidemic to hackathon participants, they attended a symposium prior to the start of the hackathon to listen to 12 speakers from different stakeholder groups, including public health, law enforcement, and research, speak about their work and the opioid crisis. While the research team noted lessons learned, such as planning for no-shows or improving recruitment efforts, overall, the experiment was a success with 19 teams competing across the four tracks and teams in each track producing and developing usable applications. And they conclude that these bottom-up and non-hierarchical approaches may be more likely to create sustainable change. The opioid crisis is not a stable phenomenon. It changes quickly. At one time, it was prescription pills. Then, it was street heroin. Today, it's fentanyl. Tomorrow, it could be some new poison or some entirely new but related problem. Perhaps an unintended consequence of a policy decision we'll make tomorrow. Never has it been more important for us to understand what to do to address opioid use disorders or how to do it. So go forth. Gather those whose voices we need. Educate those who need education. Focus on resources proven to help. And get creative. Get nimble. Because the opioid crisis demands it. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember... You can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACEDIT is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. You can find ACEDIT on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, really anywhere that you'd normally find podcasts. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACEDIT.